wonder how God might be speaking to you this morning. Maybe through a gesture, through Ash and what you shared. Thanks, Ash. Maybe through the story you've just heard of Rawa then and how God's love transforms. I wonder how God might be speaking to you today, asking you to forgive, enabling you the power to do that, encountering God's love. This last few weeks we've been talking about a series called Sacred Space. The idea of where God and humans meet. And the reason we've been talking about it is because we live in what I call a flat world. A flat world that's characterized, if you like, by the narrative that says all there is is here and now. Human beings are just material substances and that is it. And it's so prevalent everywhere. The belief that technology and the endeavors of science have so answered all the questions that are human questions that it's flattened our world. And so over the past few weeks and in the coming weeks, I'm telling a different story. And I'm inviting you, if you like, to discern which story is the story that you think is more plausible, more powerful, more hope-filled, more true to experience in life. Because I believe at the deep inner recesses of our lives and the core of our being, there is a hunger for more. This haunting sense that we are made for more and that there is something more. And so we call out and we reach out and we desire. And so there's a powerful sense within us in which we want to experience something that's just beyond the material. And I believe that that is, is God. So if you're here this morning and you're just checking out who God is, or maybe you've been coming along and you've been hearing about this person of Jesus, then I would invite you to join with me in not only just believing that the story I'm telling is a story for others, but a story for you as well. And the story doesn't begin with once upon a time, but the story begins with there once was a time in which God has revealed and he continues to reveal himself. That's Rawa's story. That's Ashley's story. That's my story. And it can be yours as well. See, over the past weeks, we've been exploring the very beginnings of the book of the Bible as it's told this narrative, Genesis 1. This idea that God took this shapeless, formless darkness and he began to mold it and shape it. And anyone living in the ancient world would have understand in that narrative that what they were describing was the construction of a temple building. And that on the seventh day that this God who was bringing life and form and shape to a formless universe would dwell within that. And that within that space that he rested on the seventh day, that he would establish his rule on that seventh day. And if you like, you had this marvelous, beautiful picture of heaven and earth overlapping, the intersecting between God's world and our world, and they were interfacing and interlocking simultaneously as one. If you like, in that space... Genesis 1, every space is sacred. Not just because space is sacred, but because God is sacred. And when he dwells within it, it becomes something different, holy, sacred, powerful. 
And then in the sequel, Genesis 2, it's a, if you like, this contributing narrative to it. It enhances what you have this, this depiction of is not just, if you like, the interlocking between heaven and earth, but God chooses in this second narrative to reveal himself as in a place where he dwells, if you like, a hot spot where God, where heaven and earth meet. And they called it Eden. And in this Eden, in this garden, this flourishing space, there were rivers and there was gold and there was jewels. And if you like, human beings were placed into that. It wasn't a story about material origins, but it answered the questions about who God is and who we are and how we best flourish. And so you have this marvelous, beautiful picture of, if you like, this interlocking, this overlapping of heaven and earth in this one location, this geographic space. And it's called Eden. And it's a place of flourishing where God's presence is real, in which he's called human beings to undertake the mandate he's given them to be vocational sort of practitioners, priests, if you like, that would extend his wisdom and his justice and his mercy and his life into the extending spaces of this earth. They were to continue on to do what he had called them to do, and that is to bring order to his disordered world, that they would continue his work of bringing life and flourishing. But the challenge is, as we discovered in these two spaces that we talked about, two profound truths. Firstly, that there is a God that the creator of this universe desires to dwell amongst people. He desires to be proximal and close to human beings. Why? Because when the presence dwells, people flourish. This picture of the overlapping between these two spaces, the hot spot of God, that when he dwells close to people, where he pours out his life and his wisdom and his power and his love, human beings made in his image flourish. If you like, we do best with God. In God, under God, with God, through God. His animating presence bringing life and and wisdom and order to what can seemingly be a chaotic world. But the tragedy is, as that story doesn't finish just there, the tragedy of this story is that it's our story. A subhuman creature comes and whispers in those humans' ears, you can't trust God. He's holding out on you. In fact, if you go ahead and eat of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will be just like him. You will be God. And those first human beings, what do they do at the first chance they get to exert their own will and their own force and their own power? Do they choose to leave the trees where they are? No. They determine what is good and evil, right and wrong, wisdom in their own steam. If you like, they desire to call the shots. And they do it badly. And so God comes with his presence in the cool of the day. And the first thing we discover is fractured is their relationship between themselves. They hide, they discern that they're naked, they cover themselves with leaves. And then God shows up in the cool of the evening and they don't like what they've done, so they go and hide behind trees. Could you picture that? Humans hiding from God behind trees. And then when he calls upon them, not only do they determine good and evil for themselves, but then they try and justify it and they blame one another and they point fingers and they say, it was his fault, it was her fault, it was its fault. 
And don't we do that all the time? Their story is our story. Who will we trust? And so we have this amazing powerful experience or understanding about those first human beings because God in that garden space that sacred space says you can no longer dwell here and he expels them and when he pushes them out of the garden it's this wondering this idea that imagine if they determined good and evil for themselves and then ate of the tree of life there would be no way to repair this dysfunction within human beings It would be eternal and, uh, if you like, unredeemable. And so he expels them from the tree of life. And they are subject to these two forces that have plagued and have been at the problem of humanity ever since. Is that they become subject to the forces of mortality and failed morality. In the space outside of his living presence, they are subject to the forces of decay and disease and death. And there's also this other force that works within them, this darkness that seems to manifest itself in other people's lives through them in fracturing other relationships that they come into contact with. We pick up this story in the fourth chapter of the book of Genesis where the first progeny of Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, uh, we discovered that Cain is someone who loves being in the fields and hunting and Abel tends the ground and they both bring an offering to God. One of the offerings is acceptable, it's Abel's and he seems to have given his best. While Cain, he decides to give something substandard, we don't know what it is, but God looks on the two of them and he determines that Abel's offering is acceptable and Cain's is not and Cain gets so angry He determines to deal with this problem of his brother being acceptable to God and him not. And it causes a jealousy to creep up within him. And so God speaks to him and says this, Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be acceptable? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door and it desires to have you, but you must rule over it. And here in this space, we get profound insight to what plagues human beings is that there are dark forces and desires within us that want to act on our own impulse in determining what is right and wrong. In fact, it's the first space here in the narrative that we hear this word sin. In the Hebrew, the word is katar. In the Greek, the word is hamartia. And it has to do with soldiers missing the mark of their targets. How... Did Cain miss the mark? Well, a short time later, he finds his brother out in the fields, Abel, and he's so jealous and angry with him that he kills him and he sheds his blood. He misses the mark in that he allows his desires to overwhelm him and so he doesn't treat someone lovingly in the image of God, if you like. He desires to take life rather than give it. And so we have this understanding of human beings, if you like. We can do great stuff, but often left to our own desires. We also find that our mercy runs out, our justice runs out, our love runs out, our patience runs out, and we get tired. We just took an hour off your sleep. Did you know that? Are you a little tired this morning? We are subject to the other forces. We fall short of who God is. We fall short of loving him and we fall short of loving others, but yet he still loves us. 
We are of infinite worth in need of great repair. So if you like, the rest of the entire biblical narrative is trying to answer this question, is how does God allow human beings back into his presence where they will flourish, where they'll find life and under trusting his goodness and determination of good and evil, that they will be made right, that his wisdom will flourish in them, that they will have eternal life and that they will, if you like, flourish as human beings the way in which he always intended. And so the story continued. A few weeks ago, we looked at Moses. God had made a promise to Abraham, his forebear, and said, through you, I'm going to raise up someone who will become like to you a deliverer, and he will rescue, and he will redeem, and he will restore the world. And through you and your progeny, that one will come, and he'll be a blessing to the nations. And so we pick up the story years and years later where Moses is called upon to go and make a great deliverance in Egypt of God's people under the slavery of the power of Pharaoh. And if you like, there's a, there's a, a flame that Moses sees in the desert. There's a tree that's on fire, but that doesn't burn up and he walks close to it. And as he gets close, God speaks to him through the flames and he says, enough, don't come any further. That's enough. <laughs> And we discover something profound about God is that he is the source of life. He is the source of power. He is utterly unique and he is good. And all of those words collectively describe something as being holy. If you like, the biblical image is fire. Why? Because fire can warm your hands and it can destroy at the same time. Wow. And so God told Moses to come no closer, not for God's sake, but for Moses' sake. Because he could warm his hands, but he could also get burnt by fire. He's powerful. And so there's a great deliverance that's formed, and Moses goes to Egypt, and God leads them out and brings them back to the very same place where Moses has been, and God has spoken to him. And in that particular place, Moses then goes up onto the mountain that's filled with clouds and thunder and lightning. It's powerful and it's awesome. And as he's up on the mountain, God speaks to him and he gives him two tablets of commands. And we can break those commands up into two sections. One, love God, and the other, love people. And God says, I'm not just giving you one command, don't eat, so I want to be specific now. Because you are to be my reflectors into this world. And if you want to know what it is to love other people and to bring my wisdom and my flourishing into this world, then it looks like this. No lying, no unfaithfulness, no murder, no stealing, no coveting. In fact, if you just go and apply those to your relationships, they'll transform them. It says, once more, what I want you to do is go ahead and don't worship other gods or other idols. Worship me alone. Why? Not because God is egotistical, but because he knows that when you worship the living God, you release other powers into your life. His powers that transform and renew you to live like this. Human beings are made to worship and we become what we worship. And if you want to reflect God's light, start worshipping him like Ashley's talking about. And you'll find that his life begins to work in and through you because he transforms and renews who you are from the inside out. The tragedy of this story, though, is that whilst he's up on the mountain getting the commands, the people down below are breaking the first ones. 
They can't wait for Moses to return. They shape a golden calf and they begin to worship it as their God who delivered them from Egypt. And here we are once again back in the Garden of Eden doing the same stuff again. So we have this curious conversation between God and Moses where God says, they can't even wait for you to get down. They've already disappointed me. He says, I'm going to send you to the promised land, but I ain't going with you. It's like a dad who's taken a trip with the kids in the back seat on a holiday. And the kids are messing up so much, he pulls the car over and says, that's it, I've had enough, you drive yourself. I'll make sure you get there, but I'm not going with you. Anyone here relate to me? A few people, okay. And so the car's driving and Moses says, no, 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 but we won't be known amongst all the nations if you aren't present with us. We need your presence. It's the power of flourishing. So God kind of concedes and makes a provision. He says, what I'm going to do is you wander the wilderness. I'm going to make a space where I can dwell with you. In the wilderness, it's called a tabernacle, like a tent. In the promised land, when they get to Jerusalem, it becomes a physical temple. And it's the space, the sacred space where God will dwell. The way the tabernacle or the tent worked is that it had outer perimeters, inner perimeters, and a hot spot. The place where God would dwell. It's called the Holy of Holies. And in that space, curiously enough, it's been decorated with gold. And it has tapestries all around it that have to do with botanical nature. It's like a garden. And there's a menorah in the middle of it, which is that seven candle that looks like a tree of life. And if you like, this is the Eden all over again. And God is dwelling and he invites people into his presence. But there's another problem When you go into God's presence, it's the one we identified, is that we have issues of mortality and failed morality. You see, when you draw closer to God, the blemishes become more apparent. Do you remember those things called overhead projectors? Long, long time ago in a far, far away land... There used to be something called an overhead projector. PowerPoint superseded it. The overhead projector worked like this, little clear screen. You write some things on it. You flick a button, a light shines up, and it reflects it onto a wall. If the overhead transparency had any imperfections on it, it showed them up amazingly because of the light that was penetrating beneath it. What we discover about human beings and God is that when human beings fall short of who God is, they break a moral. It's more than sin, it's more than just a moral command. It's a desire within that says, I want to call the shots, God. Or when we suffer from issues of mortality like disease or sickness, and you draw close to a God who is immortal And all-powerful and pure. And by nature, we are mortal. And if you like, have moral defect. The blemishes show up. And those blemishes need to be dealt with. If you like, for an utterly different immortal God to dwell with mortals. We not only need to be sometimes forgiven but we need to be washed clean from the blemishes that come. Does that make sense? And so, 
He makes a provision for how human beings can walk into his presence. And it's something that is striking to our modern ears. Something that we're uncomfortable with, but was nonetheless real. And it's called sacrifice. All different kinds of sacrifices you could come into God's presence and offer him wave offerings, thank offerings, worship him. But to deal with the issues of mortality and morality, it often involved the sacrifice of an animal that would in some way cover for who you are. Yeah. This is the end of part one in this fourth talk in the Sacred Space series. Please tune into next week's podcast for a conclusion to this talk.